Juan, it's good to see everyone at Gospel of Grace. Well, come to our seats. I love the fact that everybody loves each other here and is greeting one another. Yeah, and loves to talk. It's good to see everybody. We'll begin with prayer. We'll open up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together and learn more about your word. We do pray as we look and finish Proverbs 7 today that you would help us to be those who are pure before you, that we would have eyes just for our spouses and for you and your kingdom. And we pray for our meeting today. I pray for Bob's sermon. We pray, Lord, that everything we would do and say would be honoring to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, um, now, I know last week I got into Proverbs chapter 7. We did not finish that. So we're going to be finishing that today. And if we do finish that on time, I might get into an interpretive issue that I've run across in my eschatology uh, course that I've been teaching. But what I want to do is just uh, kind of do a little review for those of you that may have missed last week. I had mentioned last week that we're going to be finishing the book of Proverbs. That's 31 chapters. After that, I would like to teach the book of Zechariah and then Daniel and then perhaps some more uh, minor prophet books as well. So with that, let's uh, get started, and I want to show you where we left off. Today is not February 25th. That was from last week. But I showed you that this whole section is outlined as a chiasm. Now, what is a chiasm? Well, you'll see one. It's an inverted parallelism that looks like this. Notice you have, let me pull up my pointer, in verses 1 through 5, a father's appeal to keep away from the adulteress. So, of course, ultimately, this is attributed, this book of Proverbs, to Solomon, and I mentioned that Solomon has love for his children. He wants to keep them away from the adulteress so that they may live long in the land, but also that they may have eternal life. The long life in the land does bleed into everlasting life before the Lord. And we'll show evidence of that later in our studies. Now here at Proverbs 7, 6 through 23, the father gives an example story. And the example that he gives is of a young man being allured and tricked to go lie with the adulteress. And so he stumbles and fails. Well, then we go back to the father's appeal to keep away from this adulteress. Now, we, we actually did cover this slide last time. I'll just highlight what we learned. Notice in red, the purpose of this father's appeal. Notice the purpose statement. By the way, a little trick or tip for you when you're interpreting your Bible. When you see the phrase, in order that or that, Oftentimes you have what's called a purpose statement. Sometimes it could be a result clause, but oftentimes it's a purpose statement. And so here you have the purpose of this pericope. What's a pericope? No, I did not misspell or misstate periscope. I'm talking about a pericope. A pericope is a section of scripture that should be studied together. I think all of Proverbs 7 is a pericope. So here you have the purpose of the pericope that they may keep you, that is the words of wisdom, from an adulteress. Why? Because the adulteress will lead the young man, and again, you could reverse this into a woman as well, if she would fall for another man other than her husband, it leads to destruction. So that's the whole purpose of that, that they may keep you from an adulteress. Now, I did a little bit of a bunny trail last time. I mentioned that the verb keep in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is tereo. And I said, I want you to conceptually think of three passages in your mind about being kept from 
the evil one being kept from the adulterous woman and being kept from the hour of trial. Tereo, that verb, often is used with preservation on the outside. So there's three passages in your Bible that I want you to connect this to because the first time you see it used is here in Proverbs 7, 5, that we are to be kept from the adulteress. So in other words, godliness is not that we lie with the adulteress and that Jesus preserves us through that, although he can do that and he has, but that's not the point, that we would be kept from, that we would never enter in to that relationship. It's preservation on the outside. I mentioned John 17, 15. This is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Remember, we often say that the Lord's Prayer is Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, I've mentioned numerous times that's the Lord's model prayer. That's how we should pray. But in John 17, you see Jesus' intercessory prayer on our behalf. Notice here in John 17, 15, he asked the Father, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Stop there. I've been debating in my eschatology course people who will say, well, that means we can't ever be raptured. No, we are going to be removed prior to the 70th week of Daniel. This is about life in the church age. That the command is, that, Lord, don't take them out of the world, keep them from the evil one. Notice the verb tereo. Same verb in the Greek that you have in the Greek Septuagint in Proverbs 7, 5. Now, when we're kept from the evil one, does that mean that we enter into, after conversion, Satan's camp when we sin? And then when we repent, we go back to Christ's camp. And then we sin and we go back to Satan's camp. No, it means that we're preserved forever on the outside. Think about the conversion verse that Bob wrote a whole CIC article about it, Colossians 1.13. At conversion, when we trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a deliverance from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. We go from one domain to the other, and we're forever preserved in the kingdom of the Son. Turn your Bibles. Let me just do a little reminder. Turn to 1 John 5.18-19. Let me just prove this point that we have preservation on the outside. And again, I'm showing you three passages I want you to conceptually always have in your mind because they really show preservation on the outside in important ways. Again, 1 John 5, 18 through 19, that's going to help prove our point in John 17, 15, that we as believers in Christ never go back to the camp of Satan. Once we've been converted, we are forever secure in the camp of Christ. Notice 1 John 5, 18 says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Stop there. Last time I mentioned that this means sin is not an option for the Christian. John is not saying that we have sinless perfection. Why do I say that? Well, because 1 John 1, 8 through 9, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we as believers, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, so what he's claiming is this is the no sin zone. It's not tolerated in the church. But he, but he who was born of God, that's the Lord Jesus, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Stop there. Does everyone see the phrase, the evil one does not touch him? Why? Well, because the Father honors the Son's prayer. Keep them from the evil one. Notice John 17, 15. We are preserved on the outside. 
Satan will never touch us. Notice the contrast in 1 John 5, 19. One verse later, he says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What is the whole world there? Is it ge geographically the world? No, it's talking about every single human being in rebellion against Christ. All people in rebellion against God is the whole world. Notice they're all inside the camp of the evil one. You who have fled to Jesus Christ by faith are in Christ's camp forever preserved never to go back. That's the great news in the New Testament. Preservation on the outside. Preservation on the outside. Another important text, Revelation 3.10. I mentioned this one, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, there's terao. I will terao keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. No, no, notice again, we're going to be preserved on the outside of that future hour of testing. When does that come? It happens in the last seven years. We're going to be preserved on the outside. We're preserved on the outside of the adulteress. That's what we should do. We, we will, for those who believe, be preserved on the outside of Satan's camp. And you will be preserved on the outside of the hour of testing. Again, each verb is terao. So I just want you to get that concept, preservation on the outside and these critical texts. So that was my little bunny trail, but let's get back to the text. I mentioned the naive young example. Now remember, this is where Solomon, and again, the book of Proverbs is attributed to him. He had other subwriters, but whoever was writing this particular section, we're not exactly sure. This father saw an example in his life. And notice here, in this example, he sees this young man fall for the adulteress. And so we covered that. And so then we got into the adulterous woman's description. And this is where we left off last time. Notice the adulterous woman is dressed as a harlot, and she's cunning of heart. Notice where she does her evil deeds. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. Why is that important? Because she is the opposite of the Proverbs 31 woman. The Proverbs 31 woman, she stays at home. Why? Because she's content with her spouse. So she remains at home, but this woman is on the prowl. She's on the street corner. She's trying to allure this illicit relationship. That's what she's doing. And so again, Solomon's warning is to his son. Don't go after her like I saw this young man do. Notice I said last time there was a debate about verse 14 where she says this, this adulteress trying to tempt the young man, I was due to offer peace offerings today. Excuse me, let me read that again. I missed the punctuation. I was due to offer peace offerings. Pause. Today I have paid my vows. And I mentioned that there was two possible interpretations to that. If you have the NIV version, it'll follow this possible translation or interpretation that what this woman is saying is that she had made a peace offering, which is often referred to in the Old Testament as a votive offering. And in so doing, she offered meat and more than likely had leftover meat. And therefore, she's saying, hey, you know, I just did this peace offering with the Lord. I've got leftover meat. Why don't you come and dine with me? Okay, now we know from Leviticus chapter 7 that indeed Israelites who gave votive offerings or peace offerings, they were entitled to keep some of the meat. So that's not the issue. The issue is she would be using that to entice the young man. 
But what we said is that's not in the context of this passage. Nowhere in the passage of Proverbs 7 is she enticing him to dinner. Rather, she's enticing him to the bedroom. That's what we see. And so more than likely, the second option, the second interpretation is to be preferred. That is, that the adulteress is claiming that she has vows to fulfill, but she just needs the money. And in fact, if this man would pay her, she would lie with him, and then she's so godly, she would take the money and do a votive offering before the Lord. So the reason that's significant is not only is this woman the adulteress, but she cares so little for God's word that she's going to violate Deuteronomy 23 and take the money of a harlot and put it in the temple's treasury. So Solomon, in a way, is heaping up the sin of this idolatrous woman. That's what he's doing. Why? Because you're to stay far away from her. And again, you could reverse this. If it was a man doing it, it's the same thing. Stay far away from him. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18. I think this is the preferred rendering, that it's the latter. This woman is claiming that if I just got some more money, I would give a free will votive offering, and I would take that and put it in the temple of the Lord. And so again, she's going to use her harlot money to do that. What's the problem with that? Well, notice Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18, it says, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. Verse 18, You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So you cannot take the money that is taken by illicit gain and put it into the treasury. And so she's doing both. So again, you see a very wicked woman that a godly man in this case should not pursue. And that's Solomon's point. Now, as we get into verses 16 through 20, we see the rest of the adulteress's words here are dedicated to seduction. Notice, now we didn't cover this, so this is new. It says about her, this is her speaking. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. Notice here in verse 16, the adulteress's coverings come from Egypt. She has these colored linens. She has her couch spread with these coverings. She is trying to seduce the man. That's one of the reasons we know this isn't about dinner. This is about her lying with him. So that helps us interpret verse 14 from before. I also want you to see that when her colored linens come from Egypt, so is her heart. Egypt is often a sign of idolatry. Her linens are from Egypt, so is her heart. She is tied to an idolatrous heart. Idolatrous living, idolatrous heart. That's the idea. Now notice verse 18. Here's the true temptation. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. It's not about dinner. And again, that helps us in that verse 14. This is about her wanting this man to lie with her and even better that he would pay her. And she's so godly, she's going to take, I'm saying that facetiously, she's going to take the money and put it in the temple. That's what she was saying back in verse 14. But no, she wants to have this physical relationship 
And notice she says, for, this is explanatory, why can she do this? For my husband is not at home. So the husband, who is supposed to be committed to this one woman, this one woman is supposed to be committed to him. Remember Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, cleave, the term cleave is davek in Hebrew, means to covenant together and become one flesh. Jesus, the Lord of glory, commands what God has put together, let no man separate, meaning man or woman. In other words, in the category of mankind, sorry about that, whether it's man or woman, no human being is supposed to break up that covenant. Well, she's doing that very thing. She's in rebellion against God. Yes, Brian. I find it interesting that in your, she's going to, yep, it's on. Hello? I'll talk loud. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she's going to take the money and she's going to put it into the temple. Okay? Yeah. But then when you get to the New Testament, you see that, so the Jews, they can read this. Okay? Yeah. But yet you see the temple prostitutes. So they're doing the same thing that back in Proverbs, they're saying, don't do. You're, you're absolutely right. And Brian, you and I talked about this prior to the, the getting this message underway here. But yes, nothing has changed under the sun as far as men and women, relationships, desires, sinfulness. Everything's the same. Um, I was listening today on the way here to a left-wing station that talks. They're, they're always into Confucianism or some. But if you look at all the religions, it's all, they keep recycling the same heresy. Confucianism is built on the idea of pantheism. Well, pantheism is the idea that everything is God. And so you just see the same heresies just recycled decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. It's all the same. And so you're right. Nothing has changed. Human beings are still sinful, and they still have these things that need to be addressed, whether it's the old covenant or whether it's the new. Absolutely. Well said. Anybody else? I'll keep going. All right. Um, notice here in verse 19, she says, For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. I want you to see the distinction or I think a contrast between her and the Proverbs 31 woman. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 I think I had, I, I couldn't cover all of it for the sake of time, but let's start in verse 10. All of it's good. We'll cover all of it later. But pro, turn to Proverbs 31, 10 through 18. We'll look at that. Proverbs, oops, hit the wrong button there. There we go. Sorry, I lost control of my cursor here. Hope everyone turned to Proverbs 31.10. Let's start there. Notice it says, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Stop there. Notice in verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and that trust is well placed. Contrast that with the adulteress here in Proverbs 7.19. Can this husband trust her? No. She's violating the covenant, the davake, the marital covenant that she had made with him. So notice that's the first point I want you to see. With the Proverbs 31 woman, the husband can trust her, 
Why? Because she is going to be content with him at home. Not so with the adulteress who doesn't stay at home but tries to lure a different man. Notice verse 12, it keeps going. It says, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Uh, again, that's a huge contrast with the adulteress here. Notice verse 13, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Stop there. She's industrious. She's not looking for the handout from some guy that's not her husband. This woman is industrious for the sake of her family. She works with her hands for the sake of her household. What a beautiful woman. Inside and out is the depiction here in the Proverbs 31 woman. Notice verse 15. She rises also while to still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Stop here for just a moment. Do you notice how industrious this woman is? Well, wait a minute. I thought everyone who was a woman in the Judeo-Christian ethic was subjugated. Well, not the Proverbs 31 woman. She's faithful to her husband. She's buying things. She's going about. She's running this business. And her husband absolutely delights in her. That doesn't seem like a woman who's being downtrodden. No, rather, it's a woman who's so mightily trusted that the essential running of the household... Remember, what does the man love most? His children and his wife. He trusts her that she's so industrious, she's running the whole ship. That's not a woman who's downtrodden. That's a woman who is exceedingly great in the eyes of her husband, who has such great respect that in his eyes, she's doing the most important thing. She is absolutely irreplaceable. That's the biblical view of a wife, that this woman is so irreplaceable, so precious, she's far greater than all the gold one could have. That's the idea. Notice it's in verse 16 again. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. This doesn't sound like a weak woman to me. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does no, not go out at night. Notice she's a hard worker. The adulterous woman is working at night in Proverbs 7, but an entirely different work. One that's dedicated to sin and rebellion. Notice this work is dedicated to godliness and serving one's family. Far different. Far different. Dear ones, in your own life, think about in high school and on, there was the mentality of high school where all of the carousings of the high schoolers after midnight at whatever establishment they could find, for some people that never changes, does it? It just goes on year after year, decade after decade. They never flee from the sinfulness of the nightlife. You know what I mean? Going after women or men that aren't your spouse. It never changes, but for the godly, it does change. For those who have repented, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, their spouse is the final stop. That's what we're seeing here in Proverbs 31. The final stop for this woman was her husband and her family. She's content. Notice, skip down to verse 27 to 31. I couldn't fit it all in here, but Proverbs 31, 27 through 31 if you look down in verse 27, look how wonderful this woman is. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also and praises her saying, listen to the praise from the husband. Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, 
but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Notice in verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain or is vain. Notice, but notice the next phrase, but a woman who fears the Lord. Where did we see this idea of fearing the Lord first in Proverbs? Do you remember? It was in Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have true wisdom, you fear Yahweh. Why? Because you always serve the one you fear. If you fear God, you will serve Christ. If you fear man, you'll serve man. The fear of God is always the beginning of wisdom. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear him. That's man who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. But fear him, that's God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If you and I fear the Lord, we will want to serve him. Why? Because we want to please him. He's the one who has our eternal destiny at stake. And so that's how the believer lives. The believer lives to please the Lord. If you want to please the Lord, you please your spouse. That's what we see first and foremost. Want to please the Lord? You live for your spouse. You take care of your family. Remember in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy, we see that if a man does not take care of his own household, he's worse than what? The infidel. Yes, he's worse than the infidel. Why? Because he won't even take care of his own household. Again, that's the man. If you really love God, you love your family, and you take care of them. That's something we see all over Proverbs. We see in the New Testament as well. So this isn't just simply Old Covenant teaching. This ties right into what we learn in the New Covenant as well. Okay, let's keep going here. Having troubles with my computer for some reason. Uh, By the way, just a real quick aside, I was doing an eschatology message. I don't know if anyone saw the latest one I put out. I have a little picture of myself so so the person can see me online as I'm teaching. All of a sudden, I'm teaching and it's inverted. It's upside down. I have no idea how it happens. How do these glitches occur in these computers? All of a sudden, I look and I'm upside down. I'm... (laughs) And I wasn't in my, in my room, you know, I was still straight and level. I hadn't done a loop or anything, you know. So I thought, oh, that's strange. Anyway, I don't understand computers always. The naive young man succumbs. So now is the picture of the young man who falls for the allure of the adulteress. Notice it says, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering, flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Notice the metaphors that's used here by Solomon. Again, ultimately, his name is attributed to the book. Notice he succumbs to her flattery, and it says in verse 22, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter. And so the idea then is the adulteress, it looks great, but if you follow after her, you're no different or better than the dumb ox who's just plodding along and goes to the slaughter. Does the ox, when he gets on the truck, I'm using modern day 21st century language, but they have no idea they're going to the slaughter. They're just, and they just get on the truck and there they go. They don't know any better. That's the idea of the man who goes after the adulteress. You're just like a dumb ox. Notice here the next metaphor, or one in fetters 
to the discipline of a fool. The idea is that you're like a person who's handcuffed to a fool. And so you go to the destruction that they go to. Why? Because you don't know any better. That's the one who goes after the other woman. Remember, the adulteress is the other woman. That's literally how it's referred to in the Hebrew. So take that to our modern-day understanding of the way sexual morality is, is you and I have to know that anyone outside of our spouse is the other person, whether it's the other man or the other woman, that's off limits. That's the idea. So if you're going to follow the other woman or the other man, you're like an ox heading for slaughter. You're like one who's handcuffed to the fool until what? The arrow pierces through your liver. The idea is you're heading towards destruction. And then my final example that I love here, because you see it so often, you're like a bird hastening to the snare. The snare is the trap that's used four times in the book of Proverbs. And the reason I love the imagery of the snare is because it's so subtle. You have the snare and you have the food in it and the little animal, think about it. They think, this looks great. Look at, this is my, all my, this whole meal here. I got all my food groups in this one meal, but they have no idea that when they go to take that which looks good, it's going to cost them their life. In the same way, the young men and women, when they go after the other man or the other woman, they have no idea that they're heading for destruction whether it's destruction in this life or in the life to come. Now, as I say that, the great news in the Bible is that there's always repentance. God is the one who grants repentance according to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And so God is so good and gracious that he takes men and women who have made a wreck of their lives and he gives them a constant reminder that if they will flee from their idolatry and if they will turn to him, he will forgive them their sins. And I want to mention that today, that this is forgivable. That yes, you can turn from this. If you've had this in your life, you can turn. And I know um, all of us have turned from something. All of us have been idolaters. All of us have been sinners. And we all turn. The moment we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we turn from sin, self, and rebellion, and we turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Christ alone. Some years ago, I was an airline pilot and I'll never forget, we, I flew with this one particular flight attendant quite often. It just happened, he, it was just by chance he would be on our flights. I, didn't, I had a certain schedule. So every month you bid for the next month as an airline pilot. And I ended up being the number one co-pilot in Minneapolis. And I kept that so I could get my degree in, in theology. Well, I ended up getting this particular flight attendant. He was a homosexual fellow. And no one would want to sit and eat with this man. They just didn't care to do that. And one day, we, were at, we had a long three-hour break between flights in Minneapolis, and there's a TGIF. Thank God it's Friday, I think is what that stands for. Thank the Lord, right? It's Friday. Well, I sat down with him. I'll never forget the waitress got her waters, and she leaves. And while she left, the first thing out of this man's mouth, he says, what you think I do is sinful, don't you? And his, his name, I'll just change it to, um, to, to, to Mike. That's not his name, but just to protect him. I looked at Mike and I said, Mike, I do believe what you do is sinful, but I want to assure you the sin that I've had in my life will send me to hell every bit as much as the sin in your life. The difference between you and I is that I was willing to repent, turn from that sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, 
so that he could cleanse me, so that I could have the forgiveness of sins. Well, we had a nice conversation. What's so interesting is every trip I had after that, he knew that I only had good things for him, that I wasn't out to pillage Mike. I wasn't out to harm Mike. He knew that I had his best interest in mind. And so I treated him that way. I treated all the people that I work with in that way. I want the best for you. I want the best for you. And that's the way our message is as Christians. I don't want you to be like the animal going to the snare for destruction or the ox heading to slaughter. I was that man. I was doing that. And I happened to see, by God's grace, the snare around the food. I happened to notice as the dumb ox that I think going on this truck is going to lead to bad things. And it wasn't because I was smarter. It was because God reached into my life by the power of the Spirit and it regenerated a dead, lost sinner and enabled me to believe. That's exactly what the Lord does. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say, confess, Jesus is Lord, except what? By the power of the Spirit. And that's what happened to me. And so again, you and I, our role is to simply say, hey, I love you. I see you're the animal heading for the snare. But the Lord will save you. And give the gospel, and whether or not they respond, that's the work of the Spirit. You're effective every time you give the gospel. Why? Because we're just the mail carrier. Whether they open the mail, they respond to the mail, as Mike Gendron famously said, that's between them and God. God is the one who has to do that for them. So that's how we should always respond when we look at the sinful issues in the book of Proverbs is realize that there's forgiveness. That yes, destruction doesn't have to be final. But it is a warning, and it's a powerful warning. Again, the snare is used four times in the book of Proverbs. It always has to do with an animal that sees some food and says, boy, this looks great. But at the end, it leads to destruction. Okay, let's come to our last slide here. It's a father's righteous concern. So here, this father shows his concern for his boys. Listen to what he says. He says, now therefore, my sons... Listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Now notice here the final appeal. Remember in our chiasm, the first five verses of Proverbs 7? So Proverbs 7, 1 through 5, you have the Father's appeal. Then you go to the story that we just saw of the man succumbing to the adulteress. That was verse 6 all the way to 23. Now we're back to the appeal. The appeal once again, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Listen to me. And implied is that this father has the godly wisdom that's from the scriptures. So, in other words, remember the book of Proverbs always deals with generalities. Some will say, hey, I know of a, a certain fellow or a woman who had a father who was so ungodly you never want to listen to anything that they said. That may be true, and it and sometimes is. What's being implied here is the general principle, at least in the Israelite culture, that the father was equipped with godly wisdom. That's assumed to be true. Okay, so remember... Proverbs deals with generalities. In our day and age, people frown on generalities. Let me say this. If you don't have any generalities that you can derive from the world, you have no wisdom. If you can't find an example to prove your generality, then you don't have any evidence for the generality. But if you, let's say, 
could, could we, using wisdom, say, I think the sun is going to rise tomorrow in the east and it's going to set in the west? Now, that's a generality, but I've seen it for 51 years and you've seen it as long as you've lived. No, it's built on evidence, isn't it? And so, yes, generalities are part of Proverbs. It's part of wisdom. In other words, someone will say in logic, human beings are two-legged creatures. All humans have two legs. And someone will say, well, I know of a guy who was born with one leg. That's an abnormality. Human beings are born with two legs. That's normality. So that's the way the book of Proverbs is. Why is that important for interpreting the book of Proverbs? Because if you look at it as absolutely unconditional promises that you see like in didactic teaching and you don't see the generalities, then you're lost. Then all of a sudden Proverbs, because you'll say, hey, the righteous are supposed to flourish and the unrighteous head to destruction. But all of a sudden, in some nations, it's the righteous who are sent to jail and it's the unrighteous who flourish. Well, that's not the way it's ultimately going to be, is it, in the kingdom? So I just want you to see the generalities. Listen to me. The father can say that. Why? Because implied he's equipped with the wisdom of Scripture. Notice he says, do not let your heart turn aside. Remember the heart, the Hebrews understood that as the center of the thought life. Okay, so as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So the heart is the center of the thought life. They used heart as a metaphor for the center of our will, the center of our emotions, and the center of our intellect. Jesus uses the heart the same way as I showed you last time in Mark chapter 7, that sinfulness comes from the heart. It's the center of our our thought life. So literally, he says, do not let your thought life turn aside to her ways. Notice she has ways and she has paths. So, oh, I'm sorry, Yes, go ahead, Paul. Just that uh, Solomon wrote this, correct? Solomon yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, and, it's and a, we yeah. know that Solomon in his lifetime had uh, uh, relations with people outside of himself. So you wonder if this is a father to son thing, if this is not a moment of self-disclosure. You know, some have wondered that very thing, Paul. And it's interesting to note that here he would be saying, do as I say, not as I've done. And you're absolutely right. It could be um, a revelation that or a realization, let me put it that way, that he has made a, a train wreck of his own life. I'm not sure. We're not exactly sure some of the dating of this Proverbs 7. But yeah, that's a very interesting point. In fact, it brings up a good point. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9.27, something that Bob had pointed out not long ago. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9.27. This is an important point that Paul raises, is that we want to be those who don't have to say to others, Well, do as I say, but not as I do. The Apostle Paul addresses that very idea in his own ministry as an apostle and a preacher to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 9.27. I think it's 9.27 if I recall. Yeah, so notice here, and I'll just back up one verse, verse 26. Notice he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Notice he says, but, verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The disqualification here, some have claimed that it's a disqualification from ministry. That's not what Paul is referring to. He's referring to the eschatological prize. And what he means by that is not that he's justified by works, but rather, if you truly believe 
you have a life that looks different than the unregenerate world? How can he be one who preaches these things but never lives them out? So true faith leads to action. That's why, remember, we see in uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 4, Paul explains that salvation has always been by faith alone. And he uses the example of Abraham believing God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited him as righteousness. But in the book of James, James says faith without works is dead. But what James is qualifying is what kind of faith saves? Well, it's the kind of faith that's real faith, the one that leads to action. And he cites from Genesis 22. So what's the relationship between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22? That's the the riddle between Romans 4 and James 1. The difference between Genesis 15, where Abraham believed God and was credited him as righteousness, in Genesis 22, where he's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, is that what Abraham believed in Genesis 15, that the promises of Messiah come from him, he acted on in Genesis 22. Saying, if the Messiah is coming from my lineage, I know he'll even have to raise up my son from the dead. That's the idea. What Abraham believed in Genesis 15, he acted on in Genesis 22. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9.27. If I really preach it, I really believe it, I have to live it out. That's the idea that you're driving at there, Paul. I think you're exactly right. Was Solomon saying, hey, I've gaffed this. This is how you should live, even though I haven't. I don't think we can know that. But it's something to think about. Yeah, Solomon didn't live out some of the wisdom that he had. And whether he was disqualified for the prize, I can't say. That's the Lord alone. But it's something to think about. But again, true saving faith always leads to true action. And again, when we fail, we repent. Yeah, Peter. Could you apply that um, same teaching to the concept of Korban? Oh, Korban? Yeah. Where you had things dedicated to the Lord? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the, uh, but just from a family standpoint, you talked about what Rich did earlier. Um don't honor people with your lips only. Um, follow through. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesus rejects the Pharisees because they took money that they should have been using to take care of their family, their, their aging parents. They listed the money as korban, meaning it was set aside for the temple, but they only did that so they didn't have to take care of their parents. And he knew it, and he was calling him on the carpet. Yeah, that's absolute hypocrisy. If you're going to honor your father and mother, you're going to do it with your checkbook too. Exactly right. And that's what Jesus is calling. You can't just take your money and say, Corban, <laughs> sorry, you're out on the street. I dedicated this to the Lord. They were doing it as a, uh, a way to hide their money from being used to take care of their parents. Absolutely. That's further, that's further evidence in their actions, the lack of faith in God. Absolutely. Very good. That's a very good example of that. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. Steve. I'm taking a little different direction here. I've, yeah. I'm always fascinated when I see these verses that it's almost, in English, looks like it's repeating itself, to yes. listen to me and pay attention. I'm like, what is up with that? And they, it's, we should never take those for granted that they're the same. Yes. Because to pay attention is to be, you know, be attentive and, you know, and incline your ears toward something that's being said, but to listen, there's an element of obedience mixed in with that word. So it's, not only do we listen, but we also obey. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we have what we call synonymous parallelism, where the ideas are roughly synonymous. And so you're right, this idea of listen. Um, by the way, in the Greek Septuagint, it's a kuo. In, in, um, in Hebrew, it's shema. Okay, so everyone is, how many in here have ever heard of the shema? I know Bob has, obviously. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So the idea of hearing that means you hear unto saving faith. That you're not just hearing sounds go through the eardrums, but that you're hearing in a saving way. And that's exactly right, Steve. You're hearing with faith would be the idea. And that's what Jesus says in the New Testament. He who hears my words, my sheep hear my voice. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, you know. So they're not just hearing the sound go through the eardrum. They're hearing combined with faith is implied, just like Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Absolutely. Yep. Very good. By the way, um, thank you. That's a good segue. And the check's in the mail for that, Steve. Uh, look at this. I was going to point out the synonymous parallelism down here in verse 27. Notice her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. The house and chambers are synonymous. Sheol and death is as well. Yeah. Okay, so what we have is synonymous parallelism. In Hebrew poetry, it's telling you true things. Don't say, well, I can't know because it's poetry. No, it's telling you something. But don't think that Sheol is different than death or the house in the chambers are something different. The way this is structured is so that they're synonymous. Okay, does that make sense? So what is Sheol? Well, here it's death. It's death. And so that's where this ultimately leads. When you go after the adulterous woman, it leads to death. Why? Well, an example that Solomon had given in the previous chapter is once the man finds out that his wife has been cheating, he's going to want to kill this guy. That's one way it happens, and it's not me saying that. That's what Solomon said. Under the inspiration of the Spirit in Proverbs 6, this man will require the death of this other man. But when we approach wider scripture, we know this death is ultimately not just physical, but it's one day spiritual as well. Separation from God forevermore. And that's the biggest problem. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm glad we've got Bob here because he just taught us really well on this not long ago. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. And I want to just finish here in the New Testament the idea of fleeing from sexual immorality. So again, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. And what I want to do is, Bob, get, you can get in on this discussion here if you don't mind. I want to talk a little bit about the Corinthian problems and why this is so important for Paul to remind them about not being sexually immoral. One of the Corinthian problems is that they had an over-realized eschatology, meaning they thought they were living in the kingdom. They thought that they had already arrived. In fact, they boasted in being spiritual. I think that that was a thought or an idea that was really an epidemic in Asia Minor. Think about in Ephesus, according to 2 Timothy 2.17, you have Hymenaeus and Philetus. What did they deny? They, they claimed the resurrection had already happened. Well, how could they claim that the resurrection had already happened? Well, they had to try, probably claim that it was spiritual. Why? Because obviously someone's grandma, she's still in the grave. She, she was a believer in Jesus and she just died and she's not, she's still in the grave. So Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying, well, it's a spiritual resurrection. And so that's what I think the Corinthians were boasting in. In fact, turn your Bibles real quick. I'm sorry, I missed this. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. I want to prove that they had, a, had an overrealized eschatology. Eschatology, again, comes from eschatos, last things. They believed that they were in the kingdom, as it were. They were spiritual, man. They were boasting in that all the time. 
1 Corinthians 15, 12. Notice Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Why were they saying there's no resurrection of the dead? Because they denied that anything physical was good and everything spiritual was good. It was a very Gnostic-like tendency. And so they were denying the physical resurrection. This led them also to denying the distinctions between the sexes and the importance of the body. So what you see then is they are saying in Corinth that you can live any way you want sexually in your body. The body doesn't matter. What we see being taught by the Lord Jesus Christ is that even the body has been purchased by the Lord and therefore we are to live in our body in a way that glorifies him. He owns it all. And so you see that, I'm sorry, go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, just after you turn away from it. I just want to build the case as to what they were believing. Uh, Bob, would you concur largely with this? Yes. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, One of the, there's a lot of problems in Corinth. Yeah. And as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, trying to identify sometimes is a little difficult because there were letters back and forth between them and Paul. Yes. We have the two that he sent. He had others who we don't have. Yeah. We don't have theirs. So you have to read the discussion. Yes. See what they're talking about. Clearly the problem was elitism. And there were some claiming to have knowledge. And the fact their knowledge was based on things that were not biblical. Yeah. That Paul was just correcting there now you wanted uh, 1 Corinthians 6 yes 18 to 20 yeah I have my Greek here and in the King James along the side so that's what you'll be getting flee fornication every sin that a man doeth is without the body but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body what know ye that your body, what? That's a question mark. <laughs> know ye that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have received from God, and you are not your own. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, uh, I have a little. The King James is, kind of throws me off. Sure, sure. <laughs> but... um. <clears throat> To try to make a distinction between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Yeah. And such a way that the physical realm is lesser and therefore you sort of get a free pass. Yeah. Whatever goes on in the physical realm. And Paul is countering that idea for these Christians by saying, don't you know that your body, now here it's a single person. Yes. Elsewhere, it's plural. It's the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you're, you are indwelt by the Spirit if you are a Christian. Therefore, your physical body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, as a Christian, has spiritual significance. Amen. And sin isn't just something in the mind. It also affects the body. Yeah. And certain things done in the body are sinful. Yes. Okay? So you don't get a free pass by saying it was just the body. Yes. It didn't really mean anything. That's now, right. when it comes to the 
problem in Corinth where they had temple prostitutes and the various uh, false deities of Corinth, including Aphrodite, some were thinking, it's no big deal. Right. This is where I do business. This is where things are happening. I need to go to these temples, and I'll be preaching today in a section that talks about the food that had been sacrificed there. And so they gave themselves a free pass on the temple prostitutes. Yeah. Well, Paul, of course, is aghast at that, is rebuking them and warning them of the dire consequences and that you are sinning against God the Spirit who indwells you as a Christian when you engage in acts of fornication, sexual activity outside of marriage, and he is rebuking that. And whatever reason they may have in their minds that it's okay. Now, we might think, well, boy, those ancient pagans, they were really bad. Well, in my lifetime, there have been cults that had similar things going on. Right. Children of God, they went into South America. Do you remember that? No, I don't. They they had something called... um, Flirty fishing. Flirty fishing. (laughs) Thank you, Ron. (laughs) Flirty fishing. So these female missionaries would attract men by that means, flirting and immorality. Yes. And that was a cult that originated in America and ended up South America because they weren't that welcome most places here. So the Bible addresses these things. And thank you, Eric. It has to be said. You can't assume that people know this. Amen. Amen. It has to be preached so that we know to obey the law of God that, about sexual um, behavior yeah. and to trust God for the strength and power to live a life that would be pleasing to him. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Bob. And yeah, you know, it's funny. I've been uh, wrestling in my eschatology thing online with a man named uh, Don Preston. I haven't debated him officially, but Don Preston is a full preterist. He believes there is no resurrection to come. And so he believes that we are all spiritual, that we have a spiritual resurrection. And so this idea that everything is spiritual and nothing is physical, that is still with us to this day. Again, the same heresies are just recycled over and over. But what you want to see in the scriptures is just what Bob had said, is that when Christ purchased us, he purchased all of us. That when you and I were purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't just the immaterial portion, it was the body too. We are the temple, yes, the whole person That's the way to put it. And when you and I are going to be raised up, it's the whole person. It's going to be the body reunited to the soul and to live forevermore. Dear ones, because the Lord Jesus purchased us and you you and I are heading for glory and we are currently the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are to live lives that are free from immorality. That's a conclusion that I think we get from the New Testament, but we see it in Proverbs 7 as well. So with that, by the way, um, next time we're together... I just want to set up something. Um, I'm going to be getting into Proverbs 8, but what I'm going to be doing too periodically is I'm debating a lot of people online and I'm seeing key errors that people are making in eschatology. One has to do, I'm going to give you a reading assignment for next time I do Sunday school, and that is going to be read, if you would, Romans 11, 15 through 26. 
but per take particular note of Romans 11:17, and we're going to be wrestling with what Paul means by the root. Remember the root of the olive tree? And I'm going to show you how if we get the root wrong, we get Paul's point wrong about all Israel in Romans 11. And I'll show you the way some of these men I've been debating get it wrong. And uh, so again, we're going to be debating what is the root of the olive tree in Romans 11:17. And so I'm going to take different errors that people have, and we're just going to take them one by one periodically. And over time, when you see the error and you see what the, the text is actually saying, it'll just it'll stay with you. And, and you won't make the same error. And so that's one of the benefits of it. Yes. Yeah, so that'll be a couple weeks. Bob is going to be finishing the sermon series today, and then he'll be doing Sunday school for the next two weeks. So, yes, so that'll be in three weeks, I guess. Yeah. So, I'm sorry? Oh, thank you. You've even got a date. Yeah, thank you, Christy. Yeah, that's right. There you go. That's exciting. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for the words that come from the book of Proverbs, Lord. We know each of your words from Genesis to Revelation are inspired. We pray that we take these things to heart, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray for Bob today as he teaches us out of 1 Corinthians. Lord, enable us to be doers of the word, not just hearers who deceive ourselves. And we pray we would take the words that Bob gives us from the scripture seriously. Bless him and uh, help him in the sermon. We pray also for our time together in the meeting afterwards. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen.